morning and welcome. The Lord be with you. It is good to have you here for this summer Sunday school series. My name is Ryan Bonfilio and I'm a scholar in residence here at First Pres and one of the ministers on staff. We're delighted to have you out for this Sunday school class. We're doing something a little bit different starting this week. A number of you have been with us here in this room throughout the summer so far in which we did a nine-week study called Great Figures of the Old Testament. That study uh, is, it has ended. It ended at the end of July. It ended on a bang as uh, Dr. Lamont and Rebecca Lamont uh, taught on Moses last week. But beginning this week, we're starting a new series. And as you can tell, the title of this course is called The Bible in Translation of Brief History. And what this is, this four-week series, is a basically a little bite-sized taste of our Theology Matters program here at First Pres. Many of you have been to our Theology Matters classes. Theology Matters um, it consists of, it's a unique Christian education program at First Pres that consists of short four-week courses on the Bible, theology, church history, and the intersection of Christianity, culture, and the arts. The goal of the series is to present thoughtful content in a way that's accessible and engaging to a lay audience. So what that means is you do not need to be a seminary graduate uh, to hang with this class. You do not need to be a pastor or a rabbi or a scholar. You just have to be, have a little bit of interest in the role of faith in the world today. We will do everything else for you in terms of making this fun and engaging and accessible. So if you fit any of those categories, you're in the right place. And so what we normally do, Theology Matters typically takes place in the evenings, on a weekday evening, we know that some of you, for various different reasons, work or family or commutes, can't make it out on an evening, on Wednesday evening or Thursday evening. So we wanted to bring Theology Matters to Sunday morning to give you a taste of what this program is like. Uh, and hopefully it hooks you and, and you'll want to come back and join us uh, for one of the evenings uh, uh, in the fall course. I'll say more about the courses in Theology Matters that are on tap for the coming year next week. Each week of this course and all Theology Matters courses stands on its own. So if you're here this week, but at the beach next week, please come back the third week. You'll still be part of the conversation. Each week is an is a independent whole. We also will record these lectures and have them available as audio files that you can download uh, if you subscribe to First Press ATL on iTunes, or if you go to the web uh, and under the Learn link, you'll find uh, information for Theology Matters. There you can access these courses as well. One final programming note, I'll be co-teaching this four-week course uh, with my colleague Cassie Waits. Many of you know Cassie. Cassie last year served as an outstanding intern in teaching and theological education. She was so great that we found a way to keep her on staff for one more year. Cassie is now uh, what we call our Stembler Fellow. This is a new part-time position in the life of the church designed for an advanced degree student who is interested in a career in teaching, research, and writing at the intersection of the church and the academy. And if you've seen Cassie before, you know that she's a wonderful communicator and teacher, and so I'm glad to have this chance uh, to work with her in this class. With that said, my, my introductions are always long. Now I gotta start the real introduction to the course. Uh, let me pray and then we'll begin. God in heaven, we're grateful uh, to be gathered together on this Sunday morning to think more deeply about our faith and in particular to think about how it is that we have a Bible in English that we can read and reflect on and then use to inform our life of faith. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds as we think and learn and grow together. I pray this in your name. Amen. 
Where did your English Bible come from? Where did your English Bible come from? I asked this question at the beginning of a lecture to an undergraduate class, Introduction to the Bible class at Emory College about five years ago. And it was a class filled mostly with sophomores and juniors. And as a young teacher, I knew that the right pedagogical thing was not just to start lecturing, but to try to capture the attention and the imagination of those 18, 19, and 20-year-olds with a provocative and thoughtful question. Where did your English Bible come from? I thought I had knocked it out of the park. This was going to lead to this engaging conversation. These were not religion majors. These were science majors and business majors who had to fulfill a general wreck in religion. But they were going to love me as a teacher, and they were going to love the Bible. Where did your Bible come from, I asked. And then that wonderful question was met with deafening silence. So I waited, and I waited, and I waited to that point, and if you've ever been a teacher, I've waited to that point where it was completely uncomfortable, the silence. Then, much to my relief, a, a young man, I think he was a sophomore, who sat about at the second or third row, about where Alice is, raised his hand tentatively, and I thought, this is it. This is the jump start to our conversation. I called on Dexter, and Dexter said, well, I'm not sure about you, but I got my English Bible at, at the Barnes & Noble on campus. <laughs> well, Dexter wasn't wrong. He did get his English Bible at the Barnes & Noble. I knew that because he, still, he hadn't yet unwrapped it. There was still that cellophane cover with a sticker on it, uh, which meant that he was behind because this was the fourth week of the course, so that was not good. But I knew that he got his Bible at the Barnes & Noble. The problem was that was the right answer to the wrong question. I wasn't interested in where he purchased his Bible. Of course, what I wanted to ask is how did we end up with a Bible in English in the first place? After all, um, Bible was first written, the English language was not yet invented. So our English Bibles through history didn't just float down to heaven in these nice blue leather-bound hardback Bibles that we find in our pews. This didn't just float right down from heaven and land in the racks at Barnes & Noble where Dexter bought his Bible. Rather, the history of the Bible in translation and how we ended up with English versions like the NR NRSV, the KJV, the NIV, all the translations that you might know of, that process is the result of a long and fascinating story of Bible translation. And this is the topic of this course and that we'll be dealing with over the next four weeks. I want to give you just a brief overview of where we're headed, and then I want to uh, do one thing to help transition uh, for Cassie. So first, this first week, we're going to talk about what is known as the Greek Septuagint. Cassie will tell you exactly what that is in just a moment, and other early translations. So here in this first week, we want to wind the clock all the way back, actually back before the time of Jesus, to think about the very first instances where the Bible was translated into languages uh, that people could use uh, throughout the world. The second week, we're going to look at the Reformation. So we're going to take a huge jump in years. We're going to jump fast forward to the Reformation, the 1500s. And we're going to think about how the Reformation, its ideas and theology spawned the rise of the English Bible. Now, the English Bibles that were produced then were not exactly like this one, but they were important precursors to this. In the third week, uh, we're going to talk about the very famous KJV, or King James Version of the Bible, 
why it was so prominent in the history of the church, but also how it came to be revised and changed many times over throughout the year and how it ended up uh, being revised into translations that we know today, like the NRSV, which is what, the, uh, what we have in our pew racks here at First Pres. And then third and finally, we're going to look, whoops, there, there it was and there it went. Um, in our last week, we're going to look at modern English translations and paraphrase. Uh, there have been a, a, a proliferation of new translations, probably in the past 20 to 30 to 40 years. And I want to try to make sense of those translations. Why are they different? Why are they different? Why do those differences matter? Where do they come from? What were the thoughts and strategies behind these, tra- uh, these translations? And also, how do we choose? If you were going to Barnes & Noble today to find a Bible, how do you know which is the best for you? What, what, what criteria would you think about? So that last week will really focus on much more practical matters. Um, I want to say one other thing. This is, this is a course, quite obviously, about history and the history of Bible translations. That's in our title. But this is not just a history lesson. This is not just a course that's going to give you certain translations and certain dates. Uh, there will not be a test at the end to memorize those dates. But it's more than history. Because the story of how we got the Bible in English is about theology. It's about church controversy. It's about persecution. It's about uh, questions about how the Bible came to look like it looks like today. So there's a really a wide range of questions that we're going to think about that are historical in nature in some ways, but also move us beyond just the dates and facts of history. Uh, that's where we'll be headed in this course. Um, and as you know, as kind of a, a, an appetizer here, as you know, I like to often begin my classes with a quiz. Uh, this Theology Matters course will be no different. So a quick three-question quiz. You know I call these uh, celebrations of learning. Uh, this is really kind of a pre-quiz, so you might call it a pre-party, if you will. Uh, but just three questions to kind of whet our appetite, and then I'll turn it over to uh, Cassie. First, what languages were the Old Testament and the New Testament originally written in? What were the languages, uh, the original languages of Scripture? Let's start with the Old Testament. What was the Old Testament originally written in? Hebrew. Does anyone want to amend that answer at all? And a little bit of Aramaic. So the main language that we find all throughout the, Hebrew, uh, the, the Old Testament, or sometimes called the Hebrew Bible, uh, is Hebrew, of course. But there are certain bits and pieces, mainly in the book of Daniel, in the book of Ezra, and a few other scattered verses here or there. Uh, there's a little bit of Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is a very closely related language to Hebrew. It might be something like, I don't know, like Latin to Italian, or, or something like that. They're very closely... Uh, 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 related. You can talk to Lydia and Cassie. They both know Aramaic and can fill you in on the details. I consider Aramaic just to be poorly spelled Hebrew. Uh, it, it's that closely related. Um, sorry they had to spend a whole semester with it to get that answer. Um, so that's the Old Testament. It's originally written in, um, in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. Now what about the New Testament? What is the New Testament? Greek. So this one's probably a little more uh, well known for us. The New Testament was written in Greek uh, and in a type of Greek called koine. Greek. Now, koine simply means common. And this is an important point. The Greek of the New Testament is not the Greek of high Hellenistic literature. It is not the Greek of Homer. It is not the Greek of Virgil. It is the Greek of the marketplace. It is the Greek of the household. 
It is the Greek of the, of the uh, gymnasium, of the square. It's, it's the common people's Greek. So the New Testament was not written in an elevated language. It was written in the common language so that everyone could understand it. Right? Not everyone who knew Greek could follow Homer, but everyone who knew Greek could follow the Greek of Matthew and Mark and Paul and Luke and James and so on and so forth. And this is kind of the major point here, is that in both the Old and New Testament, the Bible was originally written in common languages because it was a book meant for the common people. The Bible never was meant to be a scholarly book in the sense that uh, the scripture writers and God always intended the Bible to be read by everyone, not just the rabbis and the priests and the scholars of the day. So it was always meant to be read uh, by the people. But of course, there's a problem with this, because once the, the church begins to spread, and once Jews begin to spread throughout the world, these religions begin to go to places that don't speak Hebrew and Greek. So precisely when that happens, we have the beginning of the story of the Bible in translation. The Bible, if it's meant to be a book of the common people, has to be translated into languages the common people speak. And we're going to unpack that history uh, a good bit over the next couple weeks. But let me go to, to quiz question two. In what century, so I'm leaving it very broad here, what century do we find the first English translations of the Bible? Now, it's multiple choice. I'm not going to have you fill in a blank. The 300s, these are all CE, so these are all after Christ. Uh, 300s, 700s, 1200s, or 1500s. What's our vote here? When do we see the first English translations of the Bible? So I'm hearing some C's. Anyone else? Some D's. Any dissenting votes out there? Third party votes? Third, third candidate votes? So you know that I typically do trick questions, and, and this is one of them. Uh, the, I would say the proper answer is B, the 700s. This is when we first have evidence of some portions of the Bible, not the whole Bible, but some portions of the Bible in English. Uh, the, what's, uh, the picture here is uh, something called the Lindisfarne Gospel. Uh, it is uh, from a monastery off the coast of Ireland, and it just consists of the Gospels, and it's a Latin translations. But between the lines, someone has begun to write an English translation. So it's not a full English Bible, but it's our first traces of, of what we begin to know in terms of the language families as an English translation. I also would have accepted as a correct answer the 1500s, because it's in the 1500s that we have the first complete printed English Bible all of the Old Testament, all of the New. So there, there is about an 800-year gap between the first English translations and the first full, complete, printed English Bible. And that Bible, by the way, was by Miles Coverdale. We'll talk more about him and some other important figure, figures. I'll just note here that Miles doesn't seem to be quite a happy chap. I, I don't know if this is the result of translating the Bible. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll have to delve into that in week three or week two. Um, now, finally, depending on how well you've done so far in the quiz, I want to give a bonus point opportunity. So this next question is for 1,000 extra credit points in the heavenly uh, account of this class. About how many English translations of the Bible are there? I'm going to give you options. Not fill in the blank, Tillman. Don't worry. I'm going to give you options. Dozens. Hundreds. 
thousands, or I should have had a D here, billions. Uh, it's not D. So which of these three is it? Dozens, hundreds, or thousands? A lot of C's? Some hundreds? Any dozens? Again, it depends what you mean by are there. I don't mean to be like semantically uh, tricky here, but uh, if you go into a Barnes and Noble today, as, as my friend Dexter did, he will find dozens, not hundreds and thousands of English translations. He'll find today on the market dozens of English translations. We'll name them, many of them in our last week of this study. However, if by are there, we mean how many full legitimate translations of the Bible have there been over the past 500 years, then the answer is probably B. There's probably about 300 English translations since the first uh, printing of the King James Version. So quite, quite a number more than what you can find in a bookcase, uh, a bookstore today. However, if we mean English Bible editions, then the answer might well be thousands. Now, what's the difference between an edition and a translation? Anyone know? Updates, that, yeah, I think that, that's the right point. So an example is, this is the NRSV translation, but if you go into a Christian bookstore, you'll see the NRSV study Bible, you see the NRSV confirmation Bible, the NRSV baptism Bible, the NRSV teenagers with red hair and freckles. So there's all of these different editions, and they might have different sorts of notes and a different color and different essays and kind of different supplementary material. It's all the NRSV. It's all one translation, but there might be 50 different products or 50 different editions of that one translation. So if we consider that, then the answer might well be thousands or very well near millions. <laughs> so with that, let me turn it over to Cassie to begin kind of the proper uh, history of the Bible in translation. We'll only cover one of those translations in this next segment. Uh, this is the, uh, arguably the first translation of the Old Testament. We can at least say it's an early translation of the Old Testament. And that translation is called the Septuagint. Some of you have heard of the Septuagint. You may have actually seen it abbreviated LXX. And now we're going to find out what that was. The Septuagint is a translation into Koine Greek from the Hebrew Old Testament. But how did this happen and who commissioned it? Who was responsible for it and what did it mean for the people that received this translation? The, the answer or the answers are varied and the stories are varied. There's several stories about the origins of the Septuagint and we'll start with the earliest one. There's a letter called the Letter of Aristeas. It's ascribed to Aristeas. There's a lot of uh, questions around the authenticity of this letter, but let's for a minute take this letter at its word. This letter says that the Septuagint was commissioned by Ptolemy, the ruler of Egypt, that the ruler of Egypt wanted to build a library, and he wanted it to be the biggest library in the world, the biggest library possible. This was the, uh, would become the library at Alexandria. Ptolemy commissioned the Septuagint to be translated, not because he was particularly interested in Hebrew Old Testament text, but because he wanted to build this big library. And as different uh, books were being translated, there was one book that it seemed there were no translators for. 
In all of Egypt, it seemed we could not find anyone to translate this one text. And guess what it was? It was the Hebrew Bible. And so Ptolemy sent an envoy to Jerusalem bearing gifts and, and, uh, and recruiters to find translators for this Hebrew Old Testament. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they recruited six elders from the 12 tribes of Israel and then brought them back to Alexandria. Six elders, 12 tribes of Israel, and you end up with 72 elders that were recruited to translate this new uh, version, I suppose, of the Old Testament. After the elders sat on the, the they, they read through the Old Testament, they began to translate it in Greek. After 72 days, they completed their translation, and they presented it. Here was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. They read it aloud to the Jews who lived in Alexandria. And when they did, the Jews all enthusiastically agreed that this would be the official version, the official scripture for them. It seemed that the Septuagint was acceptable to the very people who had, not, who had been using the Hebrew scriptures before. And Aristeus has this story, it seems to elevate how important the Hebrew Bible was, even to the Egyptians, as far away as they were from Jerusalem. But Aristeus was not the only story we have on where the Septuagint came from. The legend grew over the years. The next iteration we find is from a man named Philo. He was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and he, was, uh, he lived several hundred years after Aristeus. He lived around the time of Jesus. He agreed with Aristeus that this new, this Septuagint was commissioned by Ptolemy. He agreed with Aristeus that Jewish translators were recruited, but he added a little something to the end of the story. He adds that the translators were whisked off to an island called Pharos, right off the coast of Alexandria. And there on this island, uh, separated from the city, they all came together and they made their translations. And they made individual translations, each one of them. And at the end of the task, the translations were found to be identical. For Philo, this is a miracle. And it proved that this was no mere human translation, but that God was at work in the translating process. The legend expands again. And here we come to a man named Irenaeus. He was a bishop. Uh, he lived around the area of Lyon, France. And he agrees a little bit with Philo, but he also adds something to the story. He says, yes, it was commissioned by Ptolemy. Yes, Jewish translators were recruited. And yes, the translations match exactly, but he takes the story a step farther. And he wants to say that the translators were kept in separate cells, completely separated, not just from the city, but from each other. And even under those circumstances, even under those circumstances, they came up with the exact same translation. It seems very important to him that it was not just a translation inspired by God, but that the translators could not but write what God ordained them to write. Now, these stories conflict. And we're left with the question, what really happened? And how did the Septuagint come to be? And from these legends, we might be able to piece together a little bit of the truth. 
it seems that the Septuagint was translated in the second or third century BCE. And it also seems that the version of the, of the, the Greek translation was endorsed, maybe even commissioned by an Egyptian monarch. However, as we study the languages and as we study the Septuagint, we find that it seems that the Pentateuch was most likely translated first, and not by 70 people or 72 people, but perhaps by a, a smaller group. And it also seems most likely that the, this early translation was completed by a Greek-speaking Jew living in Alexandria, possibly for the Jewish community there. Christians weren't the only ones to use the Septuagint. It was also used by Greek-speaking Jews. And Jewish sources from the second century, from the time of Irenaeus, agree. The translators were separated, and they produced identical works. But according to this Jewish legend, the miracle is that the translators made ambiguous passages more clear. So the Septuagint is a uh, divinely inspired, uh, perhaps even revision, of the Hebrew Old Testament. And for the Jews and for the Christians, it was a miraculous and a very consequential translation. So if there were differences between the Septuagint, you can see the abbreviation here, the LXX, if there were differences between the Septuagint and the Hebrew Old Testament, what kind of differences are there? I think there is at least three groups of differences. We have stylistic differences, we have differences in composition or structure, and we also have differences in its, uh, I'm sorry, we have, we have the, the question of its impact and its use, different ways that it was used from the Hebrew Old Testament. In terms of style, there were two, uh, two major characteristics we see in the Septuagint. One is that metaphors are removed, and the second is that anthropomorphisms are removed. If we look at metaphor in the Old Testament, there's, there's a ton of metaphor. But if we look at metaphors in the Old Testament, one that pops out at us, one that we know today, is this metaphor of God as a rock. But what does it mean to call God a rock? When you think of the word rock, what images come to mind? Now, for some of you, you might recall in the 1990s that Chevrolet did an advertising ad. And it was a very, very successful uh, ad, and it compared their trucks to rocks. Is God a rock, like a Chevy truck is a rock? Dependable, durable? Maybe. Another possibility is that God is a rock the way a strong man might be a rock. We have an actor named Dwayne Johnson some of you may have seen in movies, and Dwayne Johnson was a pro wrestler before he was an actor. And as a pro wrestler, his name was The Rock. And some of you have seen him. Is God a rock, like Dwayne Johnson is The Rock? Is God strong? Now, maybe you don't think of trucks and you don't think of Dwayne Johnson when you think of a rock. Maybe you think, like I do, of jewelry. <laughs> maybe. When you hear about a rock, you think someone's getting engaged. Is God a rock like an engagement ring is a rock? Something valuable, something eternal? They do say that diamonds are forever. And there are other possibilities of God being a rock. 
One of them, one of them you might think of is a rock like a mountain, or maybe even like a rocky shoreline. Is God a rock like a rocky, treacherous shoreline? A shoreline that ships run into, sink themselves on where lives are lost? Is God a rock in the way that the, the western coast of England is a huge rock face that has claimed thousands of ships and thousands of lives over the centuries? Is God a deadly kind of rock? What do we mean when we say that God is a rock? The beauty of the metaphor is that it has all of these meanings. It could be any of them. And we get to choose. But what happens in the Septuagint is that we begin to limit which of these meanings is chosen. And this is how I think it's limited. Because metaphor is, is removed, this is the kind of uh, result we get. If we look at Psalm 18.2 in the Hebrew, we get these words. The Lord is my rock and my refuge. The word for rock in this case is a word selah. And it means, quite literally, rock. It really means a, a kind of a rock like you have in a mountain or, or the rock that is under the ground or within the ground. A big rock, not a pebble, not a stone. We get a rock, a word for rock in the Greek, and that word is Petrus. And we probably recognize this because we know Peter, Petrus, called the rock. This is the Greek word for rock. But it's not the word the Septuagint uses in Psalm 18. Instead, Psalm 18.2 takes this metaphor of God as a rock and converts it to a, a more of a characteristic of God. God is, the Lord is my strength and my refuge. And so Petrus is replaced with stereoma. And in stereoma has an idea behind it of firmness and stability and strength. And so does the word for rock. But it's not quite the same thing. Something gets lost in that translation, and we've eliminated the possibilities of what is God like, and now we are left with Dwayne Johnson. And is it true? Yeah, I think it's true. But is it all that God is? Maybe, maybe not. Another characteristic of the Septuagint that we notice is this removal of anthropomorphisms. And anthropomorphism is when we put a human characteristic on a non-human thing. Uh, for instance, God has an eye, or God walks, or God has legs. Another anthropomorphism that we read often in Scripture is that God has a hand. So Joshua 4.24 reads that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And we understand that. We know what it means to have God's hand on our life to have God's hand on someone's life. It doesn't just mean one thing. It could mean that God is protecting, that God is guiding. And so in the Hebrew, we find the word quite literally for hand. God has a hand. The word in Hebrew is yod. So you could say God has a yod. So the yod of God is with the Israelites here. But what happens in the Greek? Well, there's a word for hand in the Greek. That word is care. God has a care. But God doesn't have a care in Joshua, not for the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, we read that these things happen so that all the people of the earth would know the power of the Lord is mighty. Once again, uh, a, a, the, the body part of God, because God can't, God can't possibly have hands, this body part of God gets changed into a more of a characteristic of God, 
the power of the Lord. And so instead of care, we see a Greek word, dunamis. That means power. There are also differences in composition. Not only do we have a, a removal of some of the figurative language from the Hebrew text, we also have a difference in the order of the books and the, and the materials used as sources. In the Old Testament, the order is, uh, is described by basically an acronym, uh, the Tanakh. And this is what we have. We have the Torah, there's your T. We have the Nevi'im, that's your N, and we have the Ketuvim, that's the K in Tanakh. The Torah is the law, the Nevi'im is the prophecies, the prophets, and the Ketuvim are the writings. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, the first five books of our, Bibles, of our Bibles are in the Torah. The Nevi'im includes all of the former and later prophets. So you have Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. You also have Malachi, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Obadiah. Some of you didn't know Obadiah was a prophet. Obadiah. You have Nahum. You have all of those little books that show up at the end of our English Old Testaments. Those are all considered part of the Nevi'im, part of the prophets. And then the final section of a Hebrew Bible is the Ketuvim, the writings. And this includes Proverbs and Psalms and Job and Song of Solomon. It also includes Daniel and Ruth and Esther, books that are about individuals and their own faith and their, their struggles with that. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, we get a different order of books. We retain the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch, Penta for five, first five books of the Bible. But then you add in the histories. Now, the histories is a combination of some of the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible and some of the writings from the Hebrew Bible. All the books that seem to be about history end up there. So you have Joshua Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, but you also have Chronicles. You have Ezra and Nehemiah, you have Esther and you have Ruth. Some of these individual biographies, almost, of people end up in the histories. The next section in our Septuagint is, is the poetic section. And this includes Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. But what we're missing uh, at this point is all the other writings. It's not a one-for-one one with the Ketuvim. We've taken some of it and split it up and put it in the histories. And some of the Ketuvim, one of the Ketuvim writings, Daniel, ends up in the prophets. The very last section of our Septuagint is the prophets. And these are all of the... Uh, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Daniel, and the Book of the Twelve, all those smaller prophets, they wind up at the very end. And again, this is not a one-for-one. One. The Book of the Prophets in the Hebrew Bible contains a lot more than what we have in our prophet section. And, the, and, the, and it's not a one-for-one one in any way. Why are the prophets last? Why would the prophets be moved to the very end in the Septuagint? Well, it seems... Maybe some Christians had an idea that the prophets were all talking about a guy named Jesus. And maybe it made more sense if you were going to put together a full Bible, and this perhaps happened a little bit later than the day that the Septuagint or the time that it was originally translated. But if you were going to put together a big Bible and you were going to talk about Jesus, you might want those prophecies closest to Jesus' birth. And so there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a feeling that perhaps the prophets were moved to the end because Christians felt that they were pointing to something a little different than what 
the Jews believed those prophets were pointing to. Another effect of the movement we see here is that a book like Daniel, a book that might have been uh, an instructive story of how to live as an outsider in a new world, in a new land, because Daniel was, a, was in exile, and he was a Jewish person living in a Babylonian world and trying to figure out how do you balance your faith when you're an outsider. A book like that that could have been instructive uh, as a life lesson in the writings now becomes part of the prophets. And when it does, the focus, how we read that book changes. And we begin to read it as prophecy first, perhaps life lesson second. So these changes in order, while they might feel uh, you know, subtle, they have real effects on how we read these books and on how we read scripture as a whole. Finally, we get to source materials. What are the different sources that make up the Septuagint versus the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. It would be easy to say, well, we have a Hebrew Bible and we just translated the whole thing over. But that's not exactly what we find. We find that the Septuagint doesn't have as much of Jeremiah as the Hebrew Old Testament does. It doesn't have as much of Job. And it has a whole lot more of Esther. What, what accounts for those differences? Were the translators of the Septuagint just translating loosely? Were they negligent? Or perhaps did they have a different Old Testament than the one that we have today? Most people think that they were working off a different document, that the Hebrew Old Testament as we know it is one of many uh, varieties of Hebrew Old Testaments, and that the sources that they used were not necessarily the sources that were used in the versions we have today. Now, that just complicated everything a lot, that there are not only are there, are there these groups of collections of documents, but there are different sources feeding into them. And trying to untangle which is which and which one happened to where and which one came first and which one came second, I think that's what scholars do. Is that what, I think this is what Ryan does. <laughs> Finally, we get to what may be the most interesting part of the Septuagint is its use. The, the Septuagint underlines most New Testament citations. And we see this both in the Gospels and we see this in the letters of Paul. So for a few examples here, this is Luke 4.18. When Jesus visits his hometown for the first time uh, in Luke 4.18, he kicks off, or, I'm sorry, not for the first time, for the first time after he kind of kicks off his ministry, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And notice this last part, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Okay, we probably recognize that statement. And then if you had an NRSV, you could flip back and say, let me see what Isaiah had in it. Isaiah doesn't have the same thing. So now we read in Isaiah 61.1, the first part matches, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring the good news to the oppressed or poor. We missed an entire sentence here. Now it's to bind up the brokenhearted and then to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's not a one-for-one -one match. So we're left with a question. Does this mean that Luke didn't know what he was doing? Again, was Luke negligent in his own write-up of what Jesus said? If we can't trust Luke to even cite the Old Testament correctly, can we trust Luke in anything that Luke wrote? 
These are the kind of questions that, that we should ask. But then we should also look and consider what source was Luke using. We get a partial answer if we look at the Septuagint. Here we read word for word what Luke had. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind. That is, in the Greek, word for word what Luke has in his version. To complicate things just a little more, though, I would point out this part does match the Septuagint. And so we might feel a little relief. The blind have shown back up. The blind was in Luke. They were not in the Hebrew. And now we have the blind again in the Septuagint. So we feel like, okay, Luke, maybe Luke had a source that, that was reliable. At least we can say he got this part or seems to have gotten this part from the Septuagint. If we back even further up, though, and we look at this verse even in context, this is not where the quote ends. It keeps going. And if we take the entire quote of Isaiah, we find it doesn't match the Hebrew. It doesn't match the Septuagint exactly either. And so we still have an open question. Was Luke, was Luke using a different source? Was Luke intentionally adding in pieces of other verses to try to give us a fuller picture of who Jesus was? Those are all possibilities. And they're possibilities that Christians have held in some tension to say, yeah, it doesn't exactly match in every sense. It matches for the most part. And is what Luke said true? Yeah, we think it is true. One more quick example. This is from the epistles. Paul also quotes the Septuagint. 1 Corinthians 15.55, you'll probably recognize this verse from a funeral that you've been to. Paul asks, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And I want to hone in on the word sting here and on the fact that these are question marks. Your Bible will not tell you that this is a quote from Hosea, but it's a quote from Hosea. And so if we go to the Hebrew and the Septuagint of Hosea 13, 14, we find two different, two different versions of this, of this sentence. The Hebrew says, O oh death, I will be your plagues should be a period. This is a promise or maybe even a threat that God is going to come after death and God will redeem God's people from death. Hosea 13, 14 in the Septuagint asks the question Paul asked. Death, where, O oh death, is your sting? We have a question mark, clearly a question. We also have the word sting. And if, if, you, if you had read the story of Exodus, you know that a plague is a catastrophic devastation. A sting not so much. These are very different words, and they, they have very different meanings. But again, we see Paul referencing the Septuagint when he quotes the Old Testament, just as Luke seems to have referenced, for the most part, the Septuagint as he was quoting. So the final thoughts, at least on the Septuagint, is that it's messy. It's really messy. Uh, we, we have the Hebrew, we have the Septuagint. We know that the Septuagint was a revered, revered translation of, of Scripture. In fact, the, the Orthodox Church in America still uses the Septuagint as their Old Testament, believing it to be preferable even to the Hebrew. And we also know about the Septuagint is that both Christians and Jews believe that it was a miraculous translation, that it was a divinely inspired and ordained translation. And it formed the basis 
of their scriptures for hundreds of years. It formed the basis for the New Testament authors and how they actually cited Old Testament scripture. They did not go to the Hebrew. For the vast majority of time, they were in the Greek. So it mattered to them, and I think it matters to us because of that. We have just about a minute to go before we get you guys out of here, but I just want to recap real quickly some of the, the points that Cassie's beginning to so nicely highlight for us. One of the themes that we'll talk about throughout this course is that the history of Bible translation is not just saying, here's the Greek and Hebrew of the original. Now, what word best matches those words, right? That's translation. My brother's a translator. He lives in Germany. He translates uh, books and articles from German and English, and his process is to say, well, what's the best English word for this German word? Well, that's only part of the story of the history of Bible translation. Because what happens in this process of translating is that the Bible begins to change uh, in form. It begins to look different. Cassie nicely highlighted that in the Septuagint, the order of the book starts to flip around a little bit. So you're reading, and you're like, wait, that doesn't go there. That goes somewhere else. So that begins to change in translation. Sometimes we find things in translation, stuff, content, Words hold chapters that aren't in the original. So something's happening there that it's not just a translation of saying what's the best word for this thing, for that thing. So, it's a, so the, the, what the Bible looks like is beginning to be transformed. How we interact with the Bible is beginning to be transformed. All of that is part of the history of the Bible translation. So because a lot's happening more than just translation, you can imagine that there's a lot of controversy. You can imagine that Walter might say uh, to John, well, my Bible, this is the Bible. And John might say, no, 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 this is the Bible. And what happens when their two Bibles say different things? What does that mean for what you think about the inspiration of the Bible? What does that mean for what you think about the authority of the Bible? How does John and Walter resolve that issue when John's Bible says one thing and Walter says another, and it's not just a matter of thee and thou being replaced with you, but it's stuff that matters for theology and life and faith. How do you resolve those issues? This lesson on the Septuagint sets us up to answer that question. And where we'll begin next time is we're going to look at a particular dispute that Christians and Jews had about the differences between the Septuagint, that Greek translation, and the Hebrew Bible, because some really important issues begin to surface. So we'll start there next week, and that will lead us into a longer consideration of, uh, and we'll start to move very quickly. So we spent a lot of time in a short period this week. Next week, we're going to cover a lot of ground, basically about 1,600 years uh, in about 40 minutes. Uh, but just we're going to highlight some of the major points, in particular, how the Reformation kind of initiates this wave of English Bible translations. Thanks so much for being here, and we hope to have you next week.